John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1082.NU1911, certificate number 27337, Rosa Luxemburg's body. Just to be clear, we're not going to be creepy about Rosa Luxemburg's body. This is not a, not a male gazy kind of a thing where we leer about it. Well, I don't know. You, you're using the royal we here. You, Speak you, for yourself, You Ken. don't know what I'm going to get up to halfway through this episode. But she did have a um, lively and erotic uh, personal life, oh. if, if you're interested. Well, it, surely. In the, in the Emmanuel-like adventures of young Rosa Luxemburg <laughs> traipsing across Europe. Absolutely. I've seen all the Emmanuel films. Her letters recently got translated into English, including like a thousand very devoted love letters to her longtime boyfriend, Leo. Um, she's very sweet, but he seems to be a very bad boyfriend. Indeed. Oh, every boyfriend is a bad boyfriend, I think. I mean, from a very young age, she was, uh, the way she got out of, she was, you know, she was born in Russian, then Russian controlled Poland. And she got out to Zurich by persuading some priests that um, she wanted to marry a, a young Catholic boy and convert, and it was a real Romeo and Juliet situation. And the priests took pity on her and smuggled her to Switzerland under a straw bed. Mm. So, so by lying about her, her made up, I guess maybe in Poland, like a made up Catholic boyfriend is the same as you know a made up Canadian girlfriend here. Right. She lives in the Niagara Falls area. Yeah, you don't know my my Catholic <laughs> boyfriend. He lives in the Catholic part of Zurich. Shortly after this period in Europe, assimilation was not was no longer um, uh, socially acceptable. Or I mean, you know, certainly in the Nazi years, just having married a a, a German right. didn't right. erase your your uh, your her- your heritage. But the, but in Europe, it kind of went backwards and forwards throughout the the three hundred years around this, like wh- whether or not. Um, integrating into society meant assimilating as a Jewish intellectual. From a theological point of view, there's really no way a, a Christian could be a, against somebody saying, you know, hey, good, great, I found the light. Right, and, it's uh, the Christian way, right? right? And I, I guess we're just going to have to reckon with the fact that a lot of these awful ethnostates were not good Christians. Hmm. Weird. Hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, Spain did a pretty good job uh, of uh, of really... <laughs> Really, like, 
sticking to their guns, Spain, you know, would come by and knock on the door at odd hours and make sure that you didn't have a literally at a time a, when a no one when no one would expect it. Yeah, right. They were they mm. were famous for it. <laughs> she also uh, got into a sham kind of green card marriage to move from Switzerland to Berlin uh, in the 1890s. That so seems was, like going the wrong direction. Yes. So you know that's not the most romantic part of her life. But after it turned out, Leo was kind of an awful, chilly boyfriend who. How did she um, meet Leo? Uh, they were both uh, radicals. He was a right. student of Russian literature and liked to throw things through windows. We're kind of assuming that people, uh, so far, at least in this episode, know who Rosa Luxemburg is slash was. Right. Why don't we, why and we, we haven't s- even said. Yeah. We haven't even said. Why don't we set the Wayback Machine to 10 minutes ago in this episode and, and start with, well, like... Instead the, of her love life, instead of the series of... Of uh, lefty doctors and lawyers, she was seducing once. Uh, <laughs> once Leo stopped um, putting out, uh, yeah, she was one of the leading socialist thinkers slash revolutionaries of her time, early twentieth century Europe. And from a very young age, it looks like um, you know her father was an intellectual, and from the age of fifteen on, mm. it looks like she was already involved in local far left kind of working party politics in her native Poland, organizing strikes and uh, marches and so forth, 15. So, I mean, I, I guess that's the age at which my kids got radicalized too. It was so. the age that I got radicalized. But, uh, what, but what did it to you? You didn't have a, a, a Trump presidency. Well, the Reagan administration. Yeah, you had your own Trump presidency. I mean, if you think about, if you think about how we felt about Reagan – we we could never have anticipated the future. <laughs> the, kind of the misty nostalgia with which we now regard Republicans of his era. <laughs> yeah. At the time, it seemed like, uh, oh, no, it's See, 1984. He's a, a supervillain. Yeah. Um, she and, you know, Berlin, Germany and Berlin in particular were at the time the epicenter yeah. of um, this kind of leftist ideology. And this is where the revolution is going to spread across Europe. Um Spoilers, it did not, but she was there in the in the late 1890s, ready for action. And I hate to I hate to be nostalgic for it, having first of all, it it never existed in in any recognizable way that I could have connection to. But it just feels like in 1900 or 1912, like the world, the Western world was pregnant with everything was possible possibility and it was so exciting and so many brilliant minds and and it all got ruined it's it's just an accident of uh, numerology right because it happened right around the year 2000 too you, something in the human brain thinks ah this must be some kind of a new beginning yeah the year has all these circles in it and in the same way you know it, it, it turned out that the late 90s were not in fact the end of history <laughs> The end of the Cold War did not lead to a new era, or maybe it did, and we just biffed it. Yeah, we biffed it. I mean, that's the that's my feeling about about where we were in 1910. I mean, there, that's, I mean that's what happened in 1910. Yeah. yeah, so many wonderful possibilities in art and architecture. There didn't and, have to be two world wars, no. or possibly, as the future looks back on it, one long world war. There didn't. There did not have to be mechanized genocide. There didn't have to be. Ugh. Let's let's just take a moment of silence to imagine. I mean, this was a time in, in which you know the SPD, the the Social Democrats, were a real force in German politics, and it really seemed like you know this is this is going to happen. You yeah. know, we're going to overthrow the monarchy. We are going to 
get the means of production into the hands of this perpetually trodden upon working class and things Bill, are, things are going to go good. Everyone's going to have a clean, modern kitchen. The, the, uh, there's going to be sanitation and democracy. Yes. In that order. Mm -hmm. And democracy in particular was of interest to Rosa Luxemburg, you know, even after, you know, she went to party conferences with, with, uh, you know, the, the international or whatever with Lenin and Trotsky and these guys, but she always thought, especially in hindsight, um, that those guys screwed everything up, mm. that Lenin didn't have to consolidate power in the brutal way he did and outlaw all the opposition, that a real socialist revolution would be a, a parliamentary democracy. Right. Right. Where the, you know, all the ideas would jostle against each other and the best ideas would win. Yeah. And the communal ownership of, uh, of, uh, the means of production would, would shift from capital in a organic democratic way. Cause everyone kind of agreed this would be a better world. Right. Really never been tried. <laughs> it, I mean, it's not a coincidence that every time this is tried, it quickly turns into authoritarian Maoist China or Stalinist Russia. Yeah, like any, uh, you know, like any idealistic or utopian social idea, it just requires an awful lot more buy-in from people that that are opposed to it than than you typically can get just by arguing, right? That's a, that's always the problem. You think. You can educate and argue the good case, and and people of goodwill will recognize it and, and, and sign on. And maybe it turns out that the kind of people who want to lead revolutions are actually not that interested in in having the argument once they've uh, once they've won the revolution. Interesting. <laughs> wait, I don't have <laughs> well, to do this anymore. Wait a minute. What what makes you think that? It turns and you see it in politics today. You know, the second these people are in power, whether they're just some you know junior congressman from the Indiana Eighth District or whatever. They immediately are thinking, "How do I keep this office?" Well, you, you, it's it's one of our major complaints about social media is that it is not actually a place, a a, a, a fecund, a, a, a garden of ideas. Uh, yeah, like where where people are hoping that their ideas are convincing. It's a place where people are are uh, have put their ideas on uh, at the sharp end of a sword. Uh, so when Rosa joins the, the SPD, the social Democrats of Germany at that time, you know, she tries to, you know, lead them towards, you know, what eventually we associate with Bolshevist ideas. Um, she's pulling them to the left and, and she's an orator. I mean, she's a, she's a very charismatic, um, uh, just and an amazing thinker, you know, mm -hmm. a good, a, a good logical thinker who is really good on the stump as well. I guess they didn't have stumps. What, what's oh, your, they had, that's where the, that, that's, you're in, they you're, did have stumps. No, you're in, uh, you're in Weimar, Berlin. You're on the, what the, the crate. Yeah, I guess so. I guess. What is she on? I guess she's on a crate. She's on some kind uh, of an like, apple crate. The apple crate. Yeah. Der Apfelkraten. Yeah. She's very good on Der Apfelkraten. And, uh, what really goes wrong for the SPD at this time is they support the war. They, they decide uh, that they are for the Kaiser's war effort. And she thinks the party, you know, this should have been the party of good liberal ideas. And she just feels betrayed because she's a peacenik. Well, it's, it's the classic thing, right? The reason they supported the war was that they didn't want to be tarred with the, the brush right. of, of, of being unpatriotic. I went to a, a friend's house today and they were celebrating the, the, you know, the Biden victory with a big American flag in their window, you know, yeah. where it's normally, uh, not a big American right. flag in the a rainbow flag, <laughs> right? It's a you know it had 
some black block masks hanging in the window, but now it's right. an American flag because you know, you really want to insist that you're not the unpatriotic face of, of your country. Yeah. And you, I think you, you, I mean, we see it today, right? It's, it's Nixon that goes to China, of course, is our favorite, uh, trains run on time <laughs> analogy, but, but yeah, the left is always, always needing to bat down the argument that they are by not supporting war, that they don't support the nation. And, uh, as a result, uh, Rosa, Red Rosa, as she is called, Ooh. Luxembourg and her compatriots, uh, including her clo- close um, comrade and collaborator, Carl Liebenecht, leave the party and form their own, well, their own kind of wing of the party, the Spartacus League or the Spartacists. Mm-hmm. I only became aware recently of the deep association of Spartacus as a historical signifier with um, 20th century socialism, Bolshevism, communism. Are you aware of this? Go into that. Well, you know, it's a slave revolt. Right. So it's a, it's a working class uprising against a, you know, a, a, a distant and uncaring monarch. So it's it's the and so Karl Marx was a big uh, admirer of Spartacus as a historical figure. Right. And when and that got repurposed, of course, by the propagandists of of the left, you know, uh, the, of the Reds. Well, and Lenin it's a, and Trotsky. It's a classic kind of example of how the leadership of the working class always are erudite. Um, intellectuals <laughs> referring to as you, as you all know, as I stand on my Apfelkraten, <laughs> as you all know from Roman history. <laughs> remember Spartacus? Because today Spartacus is a is a just kind of a signifier of a certain kind of old timey Hollywood, right? Swords and sorcery, yeah, kind of quasi biblical. And in fact, that's not altogether untrue. Um, the the movie was kind of a well, see, I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not. So in, you know, in the Russian Revolution, um, Spartacus is a big symbol. His picture is on things. The the um, the, the international version of the Olympics was called the Spartakiads. Huh. Like the, and to this day, there are dozens of soccer clubs named for Spartacus in the former Eastern Bloc, in, including the biggest one of all, like the Moscow soccer team, the most successful Slavic world soccer team to this day is the is called FC Spartacus or something. Wow. Uh, they just can't get enough of Spartacus. I just did not make that connection at all. That's fascinating. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Uh, and the, I, I'm going to say, though, that that the that there are going to be some South Slavs that are pretty upset uh, with you saying that the Moscow team is the best team in the Slavic Are, are there world. really good Serbian soccer teams? Well, whether or not they're good, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're very— uh, I've, I've just made a powerful enemy. Yeah, by, that's right. By not considering— their fans and, right. and their feelings. That's right. Uh, I apologize Thank to the you. fans of uh, the fine football clubs of Hungary. Uh, no, not Hungary. Uh, how do, far don't do I have make to get that mistake? Bulgaria. How yeah, far down I think, do I have to get? Yeah, I think I think Sofia and your your, and your better Albanian Belgrade, uh, footy players, mm-hmm. the former Yugoslavia. All all good. I, I like all sports teams equally. Now Thank that I'm a major media you. figure, good, 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 I can't afford good. to have loyalties or, or make fun of Blue Jays hip, fans online anymore. Hip 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 hooray. <laughs> uh, although no, that's let's let's be honest. You hate all of Canada. No. Oh, has that changed? I, no, I have always loved Canada <laughs> culturally. Oh, of course. They of course. are just not sending their best to to July Mariners games. Right, I see. Um, I grew up on Canadian culture, Gordon Lightfoot and Degrassi Jr. High. Right, Tim Bits. You're not going to catch me uh, making jokes about Canada. I'm I'm deeply, uh, by temperament, I've caught Canadian. you a thousand times making jokes about Canada. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, 
Uh, and the when Spartacus becomes the signifier it is to us, it's just kind of a dusty old-timey toga movie, um, there's both righty, right-wing and left-wing things going on there because uh, the Spartacus movie we have today, the Kubrick, movie, Kubrick replaces Anthony Mann as director, Kirk Douglas in the lead, um, that was all a result of Ben-Hur being a huge hit. Right. So it's just capitalism. Right. Capitalism gives us Spartacus. Um, and there were competing, you know, Kirk Douglas was in the running for the lead of Ben-Hur, lost out to Charlton Heston, who we now think of as the epitome of the right-wing actor of the time. Kirk Douglas, the epitome of the lefty actor of the time. Uh, he is, uh, so he tries to get his own project going. He and Ewell Brenner are both trying to get competing Spartacus projects going. And uh, Kirk Douglas turns to blacklisted Hollywood screenwriter Delton Trumbo, who is still unable to write scripts. And he right. writes, uh, in two weeks, he gets a Spartacus script finished on the QT and beats Ewell Brenner's project to studio executive desk. Oh, the threads are just are just like octopusing out in every direction. And this ends up being the thing that kind of breaks the blacklist, because Douglas right. has the clout to say... Um, let's put Trumbo's name on this. And then Kennedy goes to see it and announces that uh, Spartacus is a great movie. And, and that kind of en- ends the power of the, the blacklist. But the, but the, the sort of thirties socialism that, that Trumbo was accused of to blacklist right. him in the first place is, is he, he's referencing it directly with his Spartacus exact script. The, it's not a coincidence that, I mean, that he would be interested. And in fact, he's adapting the book Spartacus, the novel by Howard Fast, who was also a big time 30s fellow traveler who refused to name names to the committee of the people who were involved in his Spanish Civil War orphans charity. <laughs> right. And it turns out included Eleanor Roosevelt. But, you know, he refused to name names and got slapped down. That's for that. such a wonderful story. You think of you think of the blacklist as being something that we kind of limped out of. Um, you know, it just sort of like even this story, uh, Kirk Douglas bringing Dalton Trumbo back into the light through the success of this movie. But you don't also realize that Dalton Trumbo is just bringing the entire footlocker of everything he was accused of <laughs> right. and denounced for has, with him. He has not decided to stop putting uh, socialist messaging in his movies. <laughs> He's like, okay, good. We'll start with Spartacus. Oh, that's wonderful. Perfect. Wow. And I don't know if people talk about this. How um, I've never heard this. Before. Maybe on the left, I don't hear about what effective propaganda is. You know, maybe there are right wing scholars who have written great stuff about, you know, conservative scholars who have written great stuff about the the Spartacus conspiracy. But I don't know. It feels like it's just one or two steps that you would have to, you know, to to link together, and right. no one's ever done it. At I, least that I've. Read. Maybe I should have done more research. If there are futurelings who have who have written, this is for the agenda show. Because now that we've talked about this for ten minutes, this cannot be its own omnibus. I think. <laughs> okay, go. Uh, yeah, you need to tell us for an agenda show yeah. what. Uh, if you've read your your P- or if you've written your PhD thesis on this exact yes. thing, please send it to us. Tell us what William F. Buckley thought about <laughs> Dalton Trumbo making Spartacus into a quasi biblical epic. We want to know. Um, so. The Spartacus League kind of breaks from the SPD in all meaningful ways because, you know, obviously the war is the biggest issue of the time. Right. They're the people's front of Judea. <laughs> right. That's, that's, what I, that's what I call them. And uh, she spends most of the war in jail as a result because she's, oh. she's uh, giving fiery speeches about un- – unpatriotic fiery speeches about how all of, we should bring all our boys home. Right. Uh, and uh, after the war, of course, there's the immediately after the war, there's the German Revolution of late 1918, early 1919, where you know tens of thousands of sailors mutiny, uh, and the Kaiser 
um, flees in shame and it's not clear, you know, now there's this power vacuum and the social Democrat, the SPD moves into power and Rosa and her friends on the left of the SPD think this is our time. You know, even the, you know, the military is waving, the Navy is waving red flags with us now. Uh, and, uh, things start to get heated very quickly. The, the chief of the head of the German police has communist ties and he gets fired. That leads to Rosa and others, uh, organizing this big general strike. But the SPD has its own kind of paramilitary arm now, the GKSD, mm-hmm. kind of its own repressive secret police, even though, you know, even though they're, they're the social Democrats, right? They're the measure good guys. But of course, <clears throat> you got to have your secret police. You got to have your secret police, You're going to lose man. power if you don't have your secret police. <laughs> and they are not up for Rose's and Carl's fiery speeches and, and uh, editorials in her, in her, um, very popular broad sheet newspaper, the red flag. Um, and so when the crackdown comes, of course, the left escalates as well, the socialists escalate as well. You know, the communists want, um, to occupy newspaper printing presses and all public buildings. And we're just coming off a time in our history where there were similar kind of, uh, extremist media calls to occupy right. public buildings. And it's, just, it can be, we know firsthand, it could be a scary time. It was, you know, politically, it was a very different group of people right. organizing the putsch this time. But, a, you know, a putsch is a putsch. But it does, and then, as now, <clears throat> activate the shadowy hand of of um, of the, what would you say, the, mm, I was about to say the shadowy hand of our capitalist overlord, <laughs> but that has... Uh, Not here. The, has, the ruling class, I guess? Yeah, the, the ruling class, right. The... Um, People, uh, people who don't want a communist revolution. Are you talking are, about elites with something to lose, or are you just talking about kind of the general person who uh, is is now going to be scared off by radical politics in the limelight? I, I'm I'm thinking more. You know, in in Europe in 1918, <clears throat> there were a lot of people that remembered Europe in 1848 that were, if not clinging to monarchies, certainly clinging to uh, the uh, well, the idea that there not be a, a sweeping Marxist revolution. It's, it's, of, it's, you yeah. see it in the older generation today. They they remember a time of, uh, you know, for them, relative stability and prosperity, and anything different is a threat to that. Right, but you're you're looking, you're sitting in Berlin and looking at what has what's actually going on in Russia at that very moment, right? Like. And, and now you've got people waving red flags taking over your newspaper offices. Yeah, whose whose stated goal is global revolution? This is going to bring people out of the out of the rat holes just unanimously. Yeah. You know, like uh, no, we need a sensible centrist government now. Right. Um, we and- need more secret police, not less. <laughs> I mean, you're seeing it today. Like yeah. plenty of of uh, you know people who would consider themselves good, reliable liberals in the wake of the. Uh, in the wake of the capital occupation and riots, are protesting for new layers of security and surveillance that would prevent this. Right, right. Not, not, not something they're they're usually associated with. It's really interesting that that the conversation about uh, the state actors having backdoor access to social media outlets and you know cell phones and so forth that that argument is now back. And people are just cheerleading. Yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, these are, you know, good, good lefties are like, we saw it on your phones, losers. That's right. That's is, that, right. is that what you guys wanted uh, a month ago? No. The government on your phone? But now all of a sudden we want, you know, we want the government to be on parlor 
or whatever, <laughs> you know, rooting out the root, rooting out the baddies. Anyway, the GKSD cracks down on what actually, you know, this is a obvious inflection point for post-war Europe. Right. And within the week, Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg are dead. Ah! Under cloudy circumstances. The hmm. GKSD says, yeah, oh, what a shame. It was a mob. They tripped uh, and fell down the stairs. It was, uh, it was just angry, angry, uh, angry mob. No, nothing to, you know, definitely not us. And uh, it's not until four months later that her body is pulled out of the Landwehr Canal in Berlin, where it's oh. been dumped. Um, well, and she was, they were not beloved by the left either, as we've said, right? Like, not by the left, leftists in power, not by the social democrats. Right. But it, also by the radical left, because they were critical of, they were critical of, of the left also. I think, you know, I think those kinds of small differences of, of, uh, of approach, you know, she, she thought that. You know, just what just because something worked in Russia does not mean this is the one path to a Marxist utopia. Like it's like she just had the end goal in mind, which right, is right. people having the nice kitchen and no oppression, you know. And she was open to whatever economic or social means would best lead to that. She was much more of a pragmatist. And maybe right. and maybe there are doctrinaire people, doctrinaire communists of the time who were like you know, get out of here with that weak stuff. Yeah, I think so. But for the most part, she was just an inspiring figure to a big, yeah. impoverished uh, working class that um, was happy to hear that somebody somebody in power say, this is our priority, let's figure out how to do it. Right. Um, so I, very quickly, I think, um, got kind of general... You know, the cemetery where she was buried became East Berlin after the Second World War. Uh, it's... Uh, I have it here somewhere, Friedrichsfelde Cemetery. Mm -hmm. And it quickly became a pilgrimage for um, communists of all stripes from all over the world. You know, le leftist types making their, Bader-Meinhof types probably making their pilgrimage there. And the East Germans named a uh, named a U-Bahn stop Rosa Luxemburg plot. Sure. And, you know, she, she was kind of a, she became Spartacus, basically. And uh, But was that true in the, in the interwar years? Uh, not so much. I mean, the interwar years are very turbulent in Germany and you've got noisy voices, uh, noisy extremists on the left and the right. Um, but you know, but before that period starts, um, there's a series of trials to try to determine what happened to Rosa. Oh. And they're basically show trials because everyone quickly finds out that it was not a mob. It was the, the GKSD. It was the, the secret police had killed her. And the SPD, the Social Democrats who are now in power of Weimar Germany, they have very little to gain in pursuing this. So they appoint as judges over these trials uh, people who collaborated in the actual orders to, to kill the leaders of the revolution. Incroyable. Yeah, so the, the cronies of the GKSD and military guys who were signing off on the orders were judging the trials and the court ends up ruling that a, the two GKSD officers an Otto uh, Runga and a transport officer named Kurt Vogel were involved that Otto Runga had attempted uh, to kill her. And then, you know, while they were, you know, she's en route in a car to prison that Otto Runga for some reason had just acted on his own to try to kill her. And then right. the, 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 you know, the guy in charge of the, motor pool, this Kurt Vogel guy ended up, um, firing the shot. He's Vogel is found guilty and has to flee to the Netherlands. And 
there's not even a request for extradition. It's more like, well, we took care of that. <laughs> <laughs> he went, he's over in, uh, he left Bielefeld and now he's in Wintersweig. Uh, we got a scapegoat <laughs> and he's happily eating chocolate and cheese, uh, not the Wien record, but the, the actual chocolate and cheese right. in uh, across the Dutch border. Little or nothing we can do. I mean, that's what happened to the Kaiser too. Uh, yeah, where did he where did he end over up over across the border in the Netherlands and just living at out some his, big house, living out his life happily with chocolate and cheese yeah, again, yeah. not the wiener, right? Uh, may, potentially, if he's maybe. a time traveler, also <laughs> listening to Wiener. If his mom let him buy that record, which my mom did not, um, it had booby boobies on the it cover. It had under boob on the yeah. cover. You can't have that. No. I had to get the version of Surfer Rosa by the Pixies with the with the Tower Records sticker right over the the chest. Did it say that it had 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 it been beeped? <laughs> it hadn't been beeped. No, I think just uh, I think retailers would put their price tag there. Right. <laughs> I don't think there's a censored version of that cover, not like the Jane's Addiction cover. Now, I would not say that our personal devices are one of the things making us more tranquil and peaceful and centered in no. the year 2021. No, our personal devices are the worst thing that ever happened to humankind. But you know what I found out from my daughter? This is wisdom from the younger generation is she was having a hard time. Another thing I don't believe in. <laughs> you don't believe in the old uh, WFTYG? My daughter was having a hard time falling asleep and she started using a meditation app on her phone. Oh, I've been hearing about these. To like, uh, you know, help... Uh, become more mindful and centered and relaxed. And it was, she swore by it. My it, daughter also now wants to go to sleep to this ASMR, like storytelling app where people are like, hey, you know, and then you walked across the trail. And it totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, why not use the technology to outwit the technology? It's yes. not like, it's not like we all have a ton of time for just guided meditation and spiritual retreats in our life. I need to learn to meditate. Well, let me recommend to you, John, the app called Headspace, advancing the fields of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Okay. I think of meditation as being like a spiritual practice, but you're telling me that I can hack the culture of the, the life-murdering phone with technology and turn it into an anti-technology self, uh, like calming reappraisal of life. Yes. If you are overwhelmed by a stressful world going through a very stressful year, there's so many options in headspace. If you want help falling asleep, if you just need a three minute SOS meditation in a very tough moment, uh, Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits. Oh, lay it on me. 600,000 five-star reviews, and it's been downloaded over 60 million times. 60 million people have uh, undertaken this life-changing meditation practice. I'm opening my phone right now because I want to download this thing. You should download it. They I, I, need, I need whatever this is. Headspace. Got it. You deserve to feel happier, John. I do. Headspace's meditation Thank you made for simple. saying that, Ken. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not just talking to any, I'm not saying the general you. I mean yeah. you, John yeah. Roderick. Yeah, well, it's hard for me sometimes to, uh, to, to care for myself, to take myself seriously. You need to take self-care seriously. And don't right. just download it right now before I give you this important information. Go okay. to okay. headspace.com slash omnibus. Because at headspace.com slash omnibus, you will get a free one-month trial. You'll have access to their full library of meditations without paying a penny. Really? Headspace.com slash omnibus. It's their best deal currently offered. Head there today.
I'm starting to think this has very little to do with the life and times of Rosa Luxemburg. What, this episode or, or this this just, uh, just topic? The, the, gene, the cover of Nothing Shocking oh. by Jen's Addiction, well, for example. You know, you, you know just like uh, Dalton Trumbo. <laughs> yeah, you, the, don't know, you don't know what secret uh, machinations Perry Farrell was up to. That's right, the tendrils just keep reaching out. In the early 90s to keep, uh, to, keep 30s, to keep 30s pinko politics back in the public eye. But then she became a martyr, or they became martyrs they after... Did. They After did. communism prevailed, yes, and all the, of course, all the little intra-party squabblings uh, were forgotten. Um, in fact, what had happened, you know, Runga and Vogel were involved in the murder, the execution, but they weren't lone gunmen. <laughs> Lone's gunmen, no. And in fact, the real guy got away. Um, the GKSD had arrested Rosa and Carl, had interrogated them, and tortured them. You know, un- under conditions of torture. These, this is not the nice kind of secret police. And uh, somebody high up in the apparatus had ordered their death. And while they were being transported to prison, um, Otto Runga uh, uh, took a rifle butt to Rose's head. Uh, a second guy whose name was never brought up at trial, the actual killer, uh, an officer named Herman. It looks like the French Souchon, but he's German. So I don't know. Souchon um, mm-hmm. shot her in the head. He's probably from Strasbourg. You, you think he's from a, a, a suspiciously francophone part of Germany? Yeah, that's don't my know. guess. Pff, probably. He's from Alsace-Lorraine. That would explain a lot of things. <laughs> sure Fondue-eating weirdo. <laughs> sure did. And then it was the truck guy, Vogel, the guy who ended up taking the fall. All he did was dump her in the canal. So, you know, again, pin it on the truck driver. Sure, innocent man for all intents and purposes. Well, no, he was a secret police worker <laughs> dumping Rosa Luxemburg in a canal. <laughs> but more innocent than Otto Runga and Herman Suchon. Um, and Herman Suchon just uh, got away scot free, got a promotion and a and a better desk. Well, everybody got away scot free because you know very quickly, um, you know the Nazis begin their rise to power, and the GKSD is very quickly merged into their storm detachments, the SA, the their the, the first Nazi brown shirts, yeah, paramilitary organization, which you know the forerunners of the brown shirts and the, S, uh, the SS, and the Nazis in fact rewarded Otto Runge. He got a you know, he got a nice pension or something for his part in in ridding the earth of a, of a dangerous firebrand. Right. Well, if the Nazis like him, you know they're on the right side of history. <laughs> right. You don't want to, you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing. You can, you can say you're not a Nazi all you want, but if, if every Nazi on Twitter is using your slogans and buying your hats, I mean, what does that say? I should say, just in case someone takes uh, that recording out of context, that we are using satire here on The Omnibus Project, and we are against Hitler. As we always say when we mention a terrible historical event or genocide, we are against it. Yes, against it. We have discussed Nazism, but not because we love it. Nope. To say how bad it was. That's right. I sometimes jokingly say, ha, 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 the Nazis. Am I right? We have discussed chattel slavery. But what a, what a terrible thing. Hard to think of a worse of thing. Not in favor. In the point of view of the omnibus. Personally against it, and we are professionally against right. it. Right. And as you know, future listeners in a society that may be considering the possibility of reinstating genocide or chattel slavery right. or whatever. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Also, we sometimes laugh about socialism, and I think in general, we're both in favor of it. <laughs> and, yet, and yet we make jokes about it. Can you imagine? And anyway. That, and that's why we know we're doing it right, because yeah, we're getting it from right. both sides. That's right. Both. Get, getting it from both that's sides. Right. If everybody's mad at you, boy, what better testament could there be to your good character? That's right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, spoilers, uh, the Nazis are able to consolidate power largely as a Ooh. result of, of, you know, leveraging 
right Co- Mid- middle fear class of fears of, of of leftist insurgents of, of rose's stripe and maybe we should get to that in a moment you love thinking about a, a, a world a, a europe without world war ii yes we'll, we'll get to without that in world the end war one yeah. oh really a Europe without World War One is the Europe that well, we want. Well, I'm going to consider here, you know, because what if Rosa had lived? Right. You get oh. a, you get a world with world a Europe with World War One, but possibly a very different post twenties outcome, right? Yeah. Okay. But hold that thought. I will. We have not got to Rosa Luxemburg's body, except for insofar as it was pulled out of a canal uh, in this following spring. Once the canal thawed, I'm clinging to that thought, uh, and not to the body. No. In 1962. A uh, surviving um, military colonel of the period, one Valdemar Popst, in giving a an interview to Der Spiegel, uh, comes right out and says, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah. I or by the way, I ordered Rosa Luxemburg's death." And this does seem to happen a lot that uh-huh. um, that these seventy or eighty year old guys just cannot stop saying, "Oh yeah, I killed the Kennedys." Yeah, or, or I mean, whatever. What, what can they do to me now? Is Maybe what that thinking. is. Yeah, and they really, on some level, they must think, you know what? I never got enough credit for this. <laughs> well, I bet, I bet it is right. You get to be a certain age, and you're like, who, who even remembers Rosa Luxemburg? The Nazis gave Otto Runga like a nice house on the outskirts of uh, of uh, Hamburg. Yeah, nobody even talks about me. I mean, I'm looking at my legacy now, and I just feel like. I need to I need to burnish my reputation. So Valdemar Pops announces to Der Spiegel, <laughs> and he says, "Here's what really happened." Uh, I gave the order. It was passed off on by these two guys, um, you know, the, then the highest forces in the in the SPD. One of them, current chancellor of Germany. I keep realizing Kurt every time Weil. I say SPD, a lot of <laughs> 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 a lot of our listeners are going to think I mean the Seattle Police Department. R- some of our listeners, uh, uh, our local listeners, our local. That's listeners. what we mean by SPD. But that's a small, small group right. of our international and, and, uh, omnibus and cr- and cross chronological yeah. listeners. Yeah. So. Despite all the things they have in common, no, we are talking about the the oppressive secret police of the of the late nineteen tens, early twenties. Uh, so he says a lot of high party officials um, gave the order. I was happy to follow through. Everybody knew about it. He's saying everybody knew about it. He's the guy who names this Herman Suchan as the killer. Now, interestingly, Herman is still alive <laughs> <laughs> and not inter- excited to be brought into Valdemar Popst's news cycle. Right. He's he's working for General Motors in, in outside <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of Detroit. No, he's probably yeah. He's working at an Audi plant or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and he sues uh, in the West German courts. And the funny thing is. Nothing happens. The West German, even the West German government of 1962 is like, oh, you know, they're the successor government. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, this was a legitimate government execution. Yeah, we uh, we, oh. we killed Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. No. Yes. Wow. Liebknecht. Uh, and when Sushan files a libel suit, it goes to court. And the whole proceedings rely upon the 1919 proceedings, which were a farce. And as a result, uh, Sushan is exonerated and... Um, you know, Pops has to pay a, a libel settlement for for saying that the guy who killed Rosa Luxemburg killed Rosa Luxemburg. Interesting. Well, so what what proof do we have that that he did kill Rosa Luxemburg? There was a a book. So it, it was cloudy for decades, and a book was written in the '90s by a, a West German. Well, I guess by the 1991, it would have been a unified German researcher named uh, Gietling, I think, um, who actually did all the work and went in the now opened. Uh, vaults and depositories and got the party records and felt very, very confident about his conclusions. And, you know, I'm sure there's 
just like in any other field, history needs its hot takes. And I'm sure you can find historians today that think Gietling was out to lunch. Right. But it's pretty well established that this, we now know the order of events that day. That He found that some receipts. He had the receipts, as we say in our time. He had the tea. That's not what we say. No. He drank the tea. He is, He was the tea. He had a thesis. That's maybe what we say. He's a historian. Yeah, he, he doesn't have the tea, sis. He has a thesis. Uh, Boo. And uh, there the story would rest, except for a further complication that happens not so long ago in our time, 2007. Again, future listeners will think this is all part of the same war that ended civilization. Right. That began, it, that <laughs> right. began in Sarajevo. <laughs> and uh, Began in 1804. Right. And yeah. ended with some germ bomb dropping in uh, Chicago. In uh, in the year uh, two thousand and uh, oh right, we're not supposed to say that. Um, this uh, this is one Doctor Michael Tsokos. He's the head of some kind of German uh, government slash military, uh, not military government slash medical um, board or institute of some kind. Right, maybe underground lab. I mean, he's not he's not crazy. He's like NI. He's their NIH or something. Oh, I see. Okay, but he do, but there are underground labs. He in the as late as um the early 2000s, he is still consolidating West and East German uh, libraries and uh, medical apparatuses and so forth. Can you imagine how, what a fun job that would be? It'd just be a dream come true. Wow. Wow. Just like taking every little every little bit from either side and, and weaving them together into a, like, a, like a patrimony. Oh, I'm, and it, I'm and it took, shivering with and it, excitement. And it took decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's still going on yeah. on, on some level. I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands of files, dusty files that somebody is still supposed to be looking at. I mean, but there's, there's all the ethical problems of like, well, you know, we did extract this information from this guy through torture, the NKVD or whatever. Uh, it, we right. wouldn't have done this on the Western side, but now what do we do with this information? Stasi, the East Germans have the Stasi. Stasi, right. Uh, in this case, that actually did happen. The, oh. uh, he was working in the basement of uh, Charité Hospital, I think, in the former East. Um, and in particular, you know, this is not just him at a desk um, putting records in a database. There is literal cleanup to be done because this basement is full of odd and macabre uh, relics of a weirder medical era, including a whole bunch of just literal gross human specimens Ugh. that were used for uh, medical study. Uh, in a time when that kind of there were no you know different ethics um, regarding that kind of dissection and and cadaver use, right? The Mengele problem, right? And I don't know if these you know I don't think this is Nazi era stuff, but there's just you know maybe every American hospital has old timey weird stuff in the basement too. I don't know. Well, and this is a thing that I don't know if I know the answer to, but after the war, the East German um, assimilation of Nazi research that they discovered. Sure. They would have assimilated that information differently than we did. And of course we had the rocket guys. Yeah. in the in the West, we sure weren't, uh, Maybe weren't above have... taking their scientists and their data and, and whitewashing it. Yeah. We had all the bad guys from like, uh, Republic serials, but they got all the the Frankenstein's and the mad scientists. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, who knows how many Frankenstein's we got that we just changed exactly. their name to Smith. Well, yeah, they, and they were all working on the aliens at Roswell. Right, 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 um, right. We don't know if the East Germans had aliens, but the most unusual relic that Doctor Tsokos comes across is a headless, mummified body 
um, that's missing its uh, feet, I think just below the knee and its hands uh, all the way up to just above the elbow, I think. Uh-huh. In and, a box? Uh, sure. Let's say it's in a, it's in an awful cotton. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of a storied thing that, yeah, don't go in that room. That's where, that's where the mummies were. And, you know, you would expect any cadaver from this period, from, you know, the Cold War to by now be a skeleton in 2007. But this particular body had undergone a process called adiposeer. Uh-huh. I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's, it's just a, a body in a certain kind of anaerobic environment will mummify. That's why you get you know, these well-preserved Irish people who just took the wrong path through the peat bog in right. the, in the 11th century. And today we can, uh, see what they had for dinner and whether, how many zits they had, you know, sure, go through their pocket. It's, it's too cool to know which people in the 11th century had combination skin. Uh, because you know, the, without aerobic bacteria down there. Yeah. Right. Nothing, it, no decay happens. You just turn to leather. Think about all the ships at the bottom of the Black Sea that are full of just are, a zombie army ready yeah, to rise up and army. again and again take over uh, take over the Urals. <laughs> I'm sure that's happened in your time. We shouldn't joke. We shouldn't joke. No, no, no. We shouldn't joke. We are also against a zombie army taking over the the, the Caucasus. Except in the case of the Return of the King. <laughs> right. Those are that's right. If you can leverage your zombie armor, your zombie army for good. Yeah. If you can, if you promise to set them free after they after they overrun the Caucasus, and Aragorn does it. He does. He's not one of these um, power hungry. Lenin's or Stalin's or or junior congressman from Indiana. No, no, he's he's desperate to share power. He's a wise. He king. wants to share his winged helmet. Uh, and he has a two thousand year old girlfriend. Well, but she sailed to the undying lands. She has to take him, doesn't? No, he dies. He dies. He, yeah, he's he, immortal. He dies. It's, to, there's foreshadowing. Why can't she, she take him? She wasn't like really Gimli that, goes. She wasn't really that big of a part of the book. I gotta say. Whether or not Gimli crossing the Great Sea is canonical, again, not super closely related to the life and times of Rosa Luxemburg. Oh, oh, right. Okay. Sure. We, we agree on this, right? Yeah, okay. B- basically. <laughs> and now's your time to make the connection. Uh, and Dr. Tokos also knows that around this hospital, there has been a rumor for a long time that, in fact, Rosa Luxemburg's body uh, never, never left. Whoa. Did not... Oh, wait... Did go in the canal, but did not make it into her grave well, or never even. That's the question. There's a couple of places where you could swap it out. You could just pull out a random body from the canal. Right. And I think, I think, uh, the Tsokos hypothesis is that after the S the GKSD kills Rosa and Carl, uh, Rosa's body is brought back and a regular J- Jane Doe is dropped into Landwehr Canal. Interesting. And uh, in fact, the there is evidence that, or there's a, accounts, hearsay around the hospital that uh, her head was severed and, you know, well into the mid 20th century, people were seeing Rosa Luxemburg's head floating in a jar of formaldehyde in a facility in Hamburg. Whoa. Just a, just Behind a, a locked door. Just a Guillermo del Toro movie going on right. there where you got Rosa Luxemburg and pro- possibly they were using it to uh, do some kind of occult divination. Right. That would be nice, right? The Nazis uh, not above using Jewish artifacts, as we know from, from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Also not above using uh, communist, severed communist heads to foretell the future and, and speak strange syllables and summon ancient gods. You would think if it were if it were in a jar of formaldehyde sitting on someone's desk, 
that that would have made it into the historical record. But you're right; it could have been in a it could have been in a warehouse somewhere in a dark in a in a well a basement lab area fifty fifty one or whatever. I don't know my numbers in German. Fifty ein. Fifty No, what what is that? Uh, I don't know what fifty one is either. Uh, never had to count that high in German. You were walking across Europe and you never had to count to fifty one. No, I always you know you you count to like. How, how many how many beers can one person drink? Like, and nobody can drink between three and fifty. I know Uh and in fact, Tokos is able to track it down to a certain witness who the the person. There is a chain of evidence here. A person who said he saw it, but sadly, that person had died in the mid nineties, oh. and he was unable to get to the bottom of it. Um, so he's got this problem. He's got. Could Rosa Luxemburg's head still exist in the basement of some German? Laboratory, right? And is this headless, armless, footless mummy I have actually actually Rosa Luxemburg? You know, one of the most important historical figures of his era. And by all accounts, Doctor Sokos is not any kind of firebrand or leftist. You know, he's not interested in this for political reasons. He has a murder to solve. There's a dead body here. There's a cold case, and he wants to know if this isn't Rosa Luxemburg, whose body is this? So he starts off by studying her autopsy, and uh, there's a whole bunch of Rosa Luxemburg's original autopsy from 1919, and there's a whole bunch of problems. Um, that autopsy um, doesn't note any uh, head trauma, uh-huh. and you know she would have taken a rifle butt to the head, according to what we now believe from uh, eyewitness testimony. Um, there is no hip disease. As a child, she had a some kind of degenerative problem of her hip. And it meant that her legs were effectively different lengths and she walked with a limp her whole life. No mention of that in the autopsy in 1919. Um, Rosa Luxemburg, a strikingly short woman. Lilliputian, the account I read, says twice. I don't know why you hmm. would go to some effort to say how Lilliputian she was. <laughs> it was, it was the style of the time. Doesn't that mean you're like the size of a, <laughs> yeah. of a, of a mouse and yeah, you're tying you, up you Gulliver? You live in a thimble, yeah. Yeah, she's like a borrower or something, no. Um, but apparently she was extremely short, but this body was too short. They found a short body, but not one that matched. Too short like it was missing the femurs? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just a few inches shorter than you would expect from... Literally Lilliputian. <laughs> well, is two inches going to be the difference? I don't know. So she was four foot eight or something, and this body was four foot? <laughs> I'm going to say she was around, yeah, she's high four foot. This body is a few inches shorter. Okay. So, you know, it could be clerical error or, you know, what happens to somebody in four months in the Landwehr Canal. Right. Um, but this is, and most suspiciously of all to Dr. Tsokos, the autopsy procedure is all wrong. It does not appear to be a very carefully, scrupulously conducted autopsy, even though the man conducting it taught autopsy science and procedure for a living. Oh. So, he thinks this is odd. So, what do you do if you're Dr. Sokos? You get, you want to do a DNA test, right? Right, of course. First so he, thing. So, he spends years trying to track down a sample of Rosa Luxemburg's DNA. Does she have any living relatives or descendants? I mean, she has, no, she has no direct descendants. She and Leo or her various other lovers never had a child. We're on the wrong side of the Holocaust for there to be a ton of Luxembourgs. Exactly. There is a grand niece found in Israel. A great niece? Is it great niece or great, grand niece? Great, great, great niece. She's probably really great. And also... Potentially very grand. She could be quite grand. I don't know. I haven't seen her flat in Israel. Um, but, uh, you know, because I, I guess by virtue of the fact that she's not a direct descendant, right? Um, it's not clear that her DNA would, you know, there's only a, Dr. Tsokos estimates a 40 to 50% chance that her DNA will match roses in a way that can be detected in a test. Right. Um, 
And when her test, when her um, DNA is sampled, in fact, it does not match. So again, could have been a inconclusive. Inconclusive, yeah. Could have been a, a could have proved it, but cannot disprove it. Um, did she ever lick stamps? All I have to do is find a stamp she licked. You know, she left these thousands of letters to Leo and others. Turns out she always used a sponge. Oh, come, come on. on. But you know, that's relatable. I don't yeah. like licking stamps. Did she collect her toenail clippings in a, in a little, uh, uh, like, mint tin? He goes through trying to find a hat or a coat, because maybe that would have a hair with a follicle. Um, it turns out, no, no. No relics. No extant. So people start telling him where the relics are. You know, he, he gets the word out in academic circles, and... Um, some botany professor says, oh, uh, she had an herbarium and a bunch of her botany books were sent to Warsaw. So we go through the books to see if she ever, you know, like if a hair. hair, did she like lick her finger and turn a page? Nothing. Um, so DNA testing is a dead end. So now he tries to disprove by examining the mummy. He tries to disprove, find evidence on the mummy that it can't be Rosa. So he does radiocarbon dating and it turns out um, the mummy is from the correct decade. Does it have a hip issue? It does have hip disease uh, it, it, uh, of a kind that, you know, it seems to have the the hips not in good shape. The legs seem to be different lengths. It's a person who would have walked with a limp on the correct side. Um, apparently, you can do a CT scan and estimate um, age at death, mm. which I didn't know. Mm. But apparently, there's modern technology to be, you know. And uh, the best guess of the CT scan was... The mummy was 47 when she died, which, which would which be is, correct. Hmm. The height is correct. The height matches better than the 1919 autopsy. Apparently, and I don't know how this works, you can look at isotopes in the mummy and find out where the body, where the body had been in life. Oh. Like Sherlock Holmes saying, this mud is only found uh, on uh, the south of the Thames, Watson to Waterloo Station. Right. But I guess you can now do it with... Uh, Atomic isotopes. Figure out that the labor canoodle that she was consuming could only have been made in Garmish Parton. Yeah, and I wonder what what is going on there. Is it like mildly radioactive stuff or is it just stuff in the soil that winds up in your food? I, 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 I guess probably then food didn't travel as far as it does now. So there there was locality yeah, that's true. Uh, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be. This guy just ate a banana from Chile. Yeah, you he must be a Chilean. Wouldn't have that, right? You'd yeah. be the, if if you were eating ham, it would have come from pigs that nearby. ate that ate this. Yeah. So, however, it's done. Uh, the isotope study finds that whoever this person is, she's lived in Poland, Switzerland, and Berlin. Again, wow. precise match for Rose's biography. Um, the body has signs of malnutrition, which would accord with her having spent World War I in a not particularly friendly jail, uh, a prison cell. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a really good match for Rosa. And there are marks on the other side. I mean, uh, some accounts of the body in the canal say that there were weights on the arms and legs, which would perhaps have led this mummy to lose its arms and legs if this really was the mystery person who got fished out of the canal. So, but this mummy, he couldn't, he could tell that she had once lived in Switzerland, but couldn't tell whether the body had been in a canal for four <laughs> months. It seems like that would have imparted a certain quality to it. I guess, wait, is this the, I guess it, if it's headless, if it's headless, this, so I guess it could go either way. This could be the body from the canal whose head was removed to match the previously beheaded by the state body of Rosa Luxemburg, or this could be. But being in a canal for four months would have caused the flesh to become mushy 
in a way that wouldn't lend itself the same way to mummification. You're as- right. This has got to be the canal body. And I think that, you know, his question is if this, if Rosa's not in Rosa's tomb, who's in Rosa's tomb? Right. And I believe, uh, General Grant. <laughs> <laughs> and his wife. I think it's been established that nobody is in Rosa Luxemburg's tomb. That the Nazis desecrated the grave. Oh, in in the late thirties. But it but it became a pilgrimage site in yeah, just as a you know, even though it's an even though I think it's now believed to be an empty grave. Oh, they didn't. They you, they you, went to all this trouble to find her hair in a book, but they didn't open the grave. Uh, I think the I think the grave must be empty, right? But um, you know, people would still go there and sing the Internationale, you know, even though even though the Nazis had had flushed the corpse, I guess. Right. Um, and that's where we are today. It's, uh, Dr. Tsokos seems quite confident that Rosa Luxemburg was not buried in Rosa Luxemburg's tomb, that she spent the 20th century with her head in Hamburg and her uh, body in a basement in Berlin and her arms and legs, who knows where. Um, but he cannot prove it. And as I said before, it's interesting to imagine what would have happened if Rosa Luxemburg had lived and yeah. there had been a a very persuasive, eloquent, you know, far leftist, a communist who nonetheless thought that post-war Germany should have a parliamentary democracy and ease into socialism that way. And, you know, what, what happens then? Does Germany fragment into its little states? Uh, what, does st- Hitler not rise to power? 20th century is totally different. I, I'm not sure that Rosa Luxemburg was the hinge, um, but it is a. Ama- it would be fascinating. I mean, the, because there were so many other things in mid 20th century, so many other pressures within the mid 20th century to keep a brilliant woman from becoming uh, a political leader, right? I mean, we had in the United States plenty of examples of like extremely persuasive and intelligent women that did not end up being the leaders of a of the socialist movement, right? There there would have been other pressures. I think it, I think we would have to go back to... To this day, it's hard to even get a center-left woman uh, in office. <laughs> it sure is. And people well, will say, it's not because she's a woman, everyone Because of her say. emails, it's one, one reason. <laughs> not because she's a woman, because of her emails. But, you know, the, the Nazis, or the not the Nazis, but the GKSD must have thought she was some kind of a hinge, you know? One of the... When... Uh, when revolution threatened, one of the first things they did was take out Rosa and Carl. Well, sure. So, I mean, that, that, that's kind of what I mean. Like, if they hadn't thrown her in a canal that day. Oh, I see. It would have. There was always another day. It would have happened later. Yeah, or something. Some kind of, some way to discredit her. I mean, if you think of all the people that were photographed with Lenin and Stalin that, that were patiently erased from history, uh, you know, who played major roles in the, in the revolution and, and, uh, and now, you know, now we laugh at the, at the photograph that, that over time shows Stalin standing all by himself by the Volga. <laughs> it's like a back to the future photo. Yeah. A, well, a lot, a lot of people got erased. Well, if you in the far future, um, have access to any Rosa Luxemburg DNA, Right. Think of all the relics that are sitting on people's mantles right now. They don't even like, know. They don't even know she once licked it. Yeah. What is? What you know? Why do we have this little statue of of Buddha? Oh, it was Rosa Luxemburg's. They'll definitely know who's in our grave. She used to put it in her mouth every morning before she went to work. <laughs> this was the pacifier she wore to every rave. People are going to know who's in our graves. I mean, they, there will be. We'll, we will have. You know, 
will have left substitute corpses probably is there a, is there something in your uh, in your religious tradition that prevents cremation or do you intend to be uh, like taken to sea and dumped what what's your plan for your corpse i feel like we talked about this in green funerals i want to be composted yeah i composted. want a tree that's right tree seems like a nice relic uh, there's not a lot of institutional encouragement for cremation in Mormon tradition, right? but it's not because it's, you know, just a way of life in so many space limited modern societies. Right. Um, the Mormons had all the land in the world. Why not? There's no, pro- yeah. I mean, Everybody if, gets an acre if, for If you live in grave. Idaho, have a giant sprawling grave, just be spread eagle <laughs> under there. Bury yourself in your, in your, uh. Your uh, Honda Odyssey. Yeah, double wide coffin. Or, or Toyota Sienna, whatever your minivan of choice was in, in Idaho life. But, um, you know, obviously any any god who can resurrect a dead body would certainly have no trouble resurrecting it from ashes and then resurrecting it. Right. It's, it's just one extra step, God. Right, right, exactly. Rosa Luxemburg's head and arms and legs will be reunited with her desiccated corpse. Presumably much easier for in a mummified future. body. Maybe that'll be God's first act in the resurrection will be uh, Irish uh, peat bog victims, King Tut, and a headless Rosa Luxemburg. You know, I want I want my body fired out of a cannon, so it's potential that God could just pluck me from the air. Right? Just I'll just keep flying. You'll just disappear at yeah. the height of your arc. That's right, and just never come down. Where did he go? Straight to heaven. And that concludes Rosa Luxemburg's body. Entry 1082.NU1911. Certificate number 27337 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that any form of social media survives even the next three years, let alone into your era, you can find us on all the places that the internet is served uh, from top to bottom. Just look for at Omnibus Project and at Ken Jennings. I may be harder to find, but really not you're, that much harder to find. You're there in the pixels. Somewhere. Yeah, you can you can you can find me where uh, wherever bodies are being fired out of a cannon. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail and presumably email will will persist uh, even after social media has its head and limbs cut off and is packed away in the basement of some German lab. Um, we get lovely emails from people at theomnibusproject at gmail.com that Ken reads. Uh, we have Futurelings fan groups uh, spread far and wide. You can find them where, um, where you like to talk to people on the internet. And we receive actual analog mail. Ken gave me a letter here that begins. It's, it's, uh, it's typed on fantastically heavy bond paper kind of marbled. Would you call this marbled? Uh, I don't know what you call that kind of parchmenty paper. It's parchment is should, what it you is. You should know that kind of stuff. That's right. And it's and the paper and the envelope match. And the letter begins, Dear John, if you are reading this letter aloud on mic, stop reading aloud now. So. <laughs> well, there we go. That's how that letter went. I'm looking at some mail with no such injunctions. Uh, at the holiday season, the uh, did you know a lot of the the... Futurelings of our era did a little postcard exchange for the for the holidays with one another with one another. Oh, how lovely! And uh, I think Raymond and Ben are 
two listeners who are responsible for those omnibus trading cards. Uh huh. Those that, are cool. Yeah. That they uh, that they have made you know, kind of a hypothetical set of um, stuff that gets mentioned on the show that they put into trading card form, collect them all. Right. But you couldn't actually collect them all because they didn't exist. But now oh, here's these are nice. um, oh look at that. Here's a picture of Willard Richards, my uh, great 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 grandfather. They're kind of like really large Pokemon cards. Here's a mail truck. <laughs> They've taken some hilarious photos that they found online. These are great, Ben. Uh, they are. They're wonderful. Thank you. And we got a, a bunch of other, um, a bunch of other fun postcards. A bunch from museums. Here's These are a, thick, thick and small. Thick with two C's. Yeah. Megan sent us a cool old-timey postcard of what is now the Smithsonian Postal Museum, formerly the Washington, D.C. Post Office. I don't know where we got this um, this note from Nicole of a skeleton that says, I realize this thank you note is a little late, and it's a skeleton. That's how late it was. Lol. You can tell the skeleton was not at the bottom of a canal. Um, Nicole notes that this note was late because she was trapped in quicksand. Contemplating eternity, not very grateful, altogether thoughtless, under lock and key, resting comfortably. How can she be under lock and key and trapped in quicksand? What is this a code for? I have no idea. That 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 little poem seems like it's a code to in a, in a fugue state or playing dead. Well, so there are other. Um, Look at the first letter of each word. Q quicksand E eternity G grateful Quag Quag it's Quag lock and key Quagle Kegel Kegel she was doing Kegels mm-hmm. hard to say. Um, it looks like, who is this from? Oh, there's no from name. This is somebody who sent us these from, oh, I don't have the name. Somebody sent it who likes to get postcards when they go to museums. And they sent us this from the, uh, Toledo Art Museum. I wonder if I have the name here somewhere. Thank you, nameless. Thank you, faceless, nameless, zombie army. This is fun. This is from Norm, uh, who's inspired, Norm! inspired by the Ch- Chick Tract episode, sent us these old-timey anti-syphilis comics. I collect them all. From, these are really good. It's this, the story of two men with syphilis. Are they, are, they the, are they facsimiles or are they real? These are period... Um, they look like they're from the National War Fund. Oh, he's, it's from Norfolk, Virginia, so it must have been World War II-era Navy stuff. Will you hold them up so I can see them? They here. are really good. So, Oh, look here, at that. Here, here's the story of two men with syphilis. One seeks treatment and one does not, and their story ends very differently. Spoilers. Here's one, um, here's one called Jerry Learns a Lesson, which begins with a man outside Dr. Quack's office thinking, this place advertised quick cures for syphilis and gonorrhea, which is a sentence I've never had in my inner monologue. And, um, but because he went to Dr. Quack instead of to an actual VA hospital or military hospital or whatever, he's, um, he's in a bad way. This is the American Social Hygiene Association telling us what Jerry learned. There is no quick cure for syphilis or gonorrhea. Thank you. Can you imagine American having the, the surname Quack and wanting to become a doctor and just being dissuaded by every single person you encounter? Yeah, I would change my name. Yeah. I think. Quark. Uh, yeah, Dr. Dr. Quark. He's the, uh. He's the bartender on Deep Space Nine. Uh, I should say that you can send us mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155, and and, uh, address it to the Omnibus Project. That is P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 
98155. Uh, and in conclusion, at least for my portion, uh, we are a fan-supported enterprise, and you can support the show directly at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Um, your generous support is what enables us to do the show. So thank you very much. Thank you. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. I almost revealed it today, and then John wouldn't let me. Nope. We hope and pray that the eventual catastrophe will never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>